Welcome to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast, the podcast all about the good, the bad and the ugly of British policing. If you're interested in how policing works and you want to hear some incredible people talking about what they did in their policing careers, then this is definitely the podcast for you. Sometimes we cover some pretty gory or distressing subjects and there may be a bit of swearing from time to time. So probably best to keep the kids out of earshot. Right, here we go. Hello everybody, welcome to episode 75 of the Tiger Juliet Foxtrot podcast. Hope you're all well. Give you an update on my seemingly never-ending building project. Um, I think we may be drawing to something of a conclusion, thank God. Um, I was hoping to record this little intro about uh, an hour ago, but um, yeah, large amounts of drilling and uh, angle grinding going on. So, uh, so yeah, I shall be very, very glad to see the back of them all. Bless them. And we shall have probably about 500% more tea and coffee in the house. Um, I probably would have to go to the shop to buy milk every two minutes, but there you go. Right, that's my little building grumble out of the way. I had a really... Uh, nice chat with Hugh Keir, who's an ex-parachute regiment sniper who went to Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, he's got his own podcast called H Hour, as in the letter H, HR podcast. Really good podcast, actually. I don't tend to promote other people's podcasts on my podcast, but if you're interested in uh, anything to do with the military, uh, Hugh gets some some really fascinating people on to talk to. Uh, I had been on his podcast once before, I think just about a, just over a year ago, and uh, talking about the the Tango Juliet Foxtrot book, and he invited me to come back on to his podcast at the weekend to talk about um, my response to well, have a bit of a catch up, I suppose, because obviously things have changed quite a lot in policing over the last twelve months, and he was interested in hearing about my my thoughts about all that stuff, like the uh, issues around bad behaviour of police officers and some of the um, you know troubling headlines that we've seen, the whole David Carrick um, catastrophe, um, and he also wanted to get my thoughts on. Uh, a previous guest of his, Neil Woods, who's a, he describes himself as a drugs activist. He's an ex-police officer, ex-undercover, I think level two undercover officer. And I had given Hugh some feedback around some of the things that Neil had been saying, which I disagreed with specifically around police racism. And, um, and Hugh wanted to get me back on to his podcast to talk about why I don't believe for a minute that the police service in England and Wales is systemically racist and that this has just become a unchallenged urban myth. So if you want to listen to that podcast, go on to HR. Uh, in fact, you could probably just Google my name and HR, HR, and you'll find it. It's on YouTube as well. He has the rather disconcerting habit of videoing his uh, podcast interviews and then putting them out on, on um, YouTube as well as the usual podcast channels uh, as an audio experience. So 
if you want to listen to me going on about all of that stuff, then you can do that on the audio bit. If you want to watch me uh, looking quite uncomfortable because I don't like being on camera, if I'm honest, uh, then you can watch it on YouTube. Right, this week I shall be giving you the interview that I did with uh, Ian Brighton. It was really brilliant. I really enjoyed our conversation. It was. I learned so much from talking to him. Um, he's a real authority on the entire world of drugs, drug trafficking, everything about drug importation, drug prices, uh, the current sort of way that organized crime groups are using the various methods they use to get drugs into the country, uh, the way that urban street gangs and organized crime gangs uh, operate their businesses really really interesting stuff so without further ado we'll get into that interview now sing i'll sing something shall i i can hear you now hey there we go excellent how are you doing yeah good thanks how are you yeah i'm very well thank you yeah is it as bloody freezing cold where you are as it is here it is there's uh frost all over the lawn very very icy out there oh god where are you which part of the country Hertfordshire. Hertfordshire. Oh, bloody hell. Yeah. I thought it was very, I thought it was like God's country, like the English Riviera, Hertfordshire. (laughs) (laughs) Not today. (laughs) Clearly not. You know what? I don't, I've very spent very little time in Hertfordshire over the years. Um, My most memorable uh, visit to Hertfordshire was, you remember when you did the, do you ever do the driving course to take you up to that crazy, is it, is it um, Welland Garden City? Uh, yeah. Or is it pop? There's well and It's got that crazy roundabout. It's got it's got like about eight roundabouts all round another roundabout. Is that well and Garden City? Is it? No, it's not. That's Hemel Hempstead. Hemel Hempstead. The magic roundabout. Oh my God! Anyone listening to this who's done a Met Police driving course will know exactly where I'm talking about. Absolutely. <laughs> and they'll know the super sausage on the A. Is it the A six or the A five? I guess the A five, isn't it? Near toaster. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I love yeah. driving courses. Super, super sausage. There's a funny story. I was just you've just reminded me there. I was on my driving course, um, my standard response driving course back in oh my god, when was this? About 1994, I think. Yeah. And um, the instructor was mad about eating at the super sausage, and um, he, he always insisted on having the first drive of the day. So that so that he could get to the super sausage really quickly. Wasn't and, it wasn't Big Fred Butter, was it? I don't remember his name. He was a big, tall, lanky geezer with gingery oh. coloured hair and yeah, glasses. not Fred. You would never describe Fred as blanky. He was actually a civvy. Uh, are you allowed to use that word anymore? He was actually a member of police staff. <laughs> <I> think so, <laughs> ex-cop. But uh, he was very, very fast driver, as they all were. And um, anyway, he was so keen to get to super sausage that morning that. He came around a left, very, very fast left-hand bend, doing well over 100 miles an hour, and um, only to come around the bend, and there's, there was a set of temporary traffic lights had been set up. Uh, <laughs> and he obviously didn't know the, there was a tailback of traffic as well, as there, as there often is. He came around the bend over 100 miles an hour, saw the traffic tailing back, uh, stepped on the anchors, lost, nearly lost it. Um, the car was snaking all over the road. 
uh, cadence breaking like mad. This is the days before we had ABS, obviously. Yeah, and yeah. managed literally to stop about three inches behind the the back bumper of the rearmost car of the. Wow. <laughs> so the so the closest I came to dying on that course was actually when the when the instructor was driving. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> well, at least he'd left enough distance to stop. <laughs> yeah. Well, you Textbook. know, you could say that. But uh, anyway, how are you? Listen, um, you and I have got lots in common, haven't you? Haven't Definitely. Because you've got we've got the same name, haven't we? Yeah, although uh, be, you, 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 don't be, spell, I, you don't spell yours correctly. But, yeah. I spell mine properly. Was <laughs> um, we joined the Met Police the same year, didn't we, 1989? Yeah, I was in uh, five of 89, red intake. Red intake, so you were just a little bit ahead of me. Or um, behind, I'm not sure. I'm trying to know, I think you were ahead of me, possibly. I, think I was May. May eight. Did you start May 89, did you? Yeah, oh, May. Right. You, yeah, you were ahead of me then, weren't you? Because right. I started February 89. All right. Oh bloody hell, yeah. Um, yeah. What else? Um, yeah, we. Uh, you, you read my book, obviously, as, uh, which is obviously a, a bonus. And uh, yeah, and you're on the podcast, so yeah. So listen, yeah. Um, this is all about drugs uh, this week. Sure. So um, to that to that end, if you just introduce yourself uh, and explain what why you're here to talk about drugs. Yeah, just to, um, I suppose it's just to share some of my knowledge that I've gained over the last 30-odd years um, dealing with drugs to try and work, uh, raise awareness to give something back, I suppose. Um, I've been extremely fortunate all my service to, uh, you know, work with some fantastic people in some fantastic places. And I think I've got a, an in-depth knowledge that's probably... Um, higher than most people's so yeah i would you say know drugs get pretty top. higher than about 99.99 percent of the population probably yeah I'm, it's frustrating in police circles because you know it drives so much crime it drives so much of the serious violence mm. um and it's never well up until now it's never had proper funding or attention since i would suggest about 2005 right. when we started moving away from it and you know, mm. drug um, squads mm. across the country, not just in the net, started to focus, went elsewhere. Yeah. And that's got, that's all to do with the politics that got involved within policing, with your MOPAC and your um, um, police and crime commissioners. Yeah, yeah. So um, so you are now an expert witness uh, and you go, it's quite amazing. I mean, I was looking at, I was just flicking back through your LinkedIn feed. Yeah. Um, and... Um, uh, yeah, the number of crime courts that you you attend on a weekly basis, literally to give evidence as an expert witness in drug trafficking jobs, uh, is is pretty pretty impressive to say the least. So, um, given given you know, we'll, we'll come on and talk all about your uh, knowledge because I'm stacked tons of things I'm really interested in 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 understanding more about. Um, I always say this, you know, even though I spent like you 30 years in the police and i was an experienced investigator none of us know everything do we and no. uh, there's loads and loads of stuff particularly around i love sp speaking to people who are real deep subject matter experts on any particular issue um so but but we'll do what we always do go right back to the start before you even joined the job um so what was it what was it that propelled you to join the police in the first place i think it was something i was always going to do my um my grandfather was um a police officer 
I never met him because he died um, on duty suddenly, um, massive heart attack when he was in his early 40s. Um, so my dad was a, a boy at that time. He went on to join the police and my elder brother joined the police, but they were they were all up north um, in northwestern forces. Mm. Um, I was always going to join. I went to school, did my A-levels, and I just heard them talking about the stories they were doing. Um, all my friends who were doing their A-levels went off to university and I was, you know, it's not for me. I just want to go back on and I wanted to join the police. So I didn't go to university. I, it's a funny story, actually. I, I applied for four Northern Forces because I come from, were, um, Lancashire, Merseyside, Greater Manchester and Cheshire all, all combined. So I applied to all four forces and got letters back from all of them, basically, saying I wasn't, you know, I had to wait till I was 21. I think Lancashire was 23 at the time. Mm. But it turns out that my um, my father had who who worked for Merseyside Police intercepted my letter to Merseyside, and and basically told him to write back saying I had to be twenty one because um, <laughs> he didn't want me joining Merseyside. He wanted me to go to the Met. Right. Okay. I received his letter back saying sorry, but you have to be twenty one. And I thought, what am I going to do now? And he said, look, come and have a word with um, I think it was Mike Sweeney who we worked with. Come and have a word, a word with his son, Austin Sweeney, who works mm. in the net. And um, see if you fancy that. And I had a chat with him and he just sold it to me. He said, look, you can do this, you can do that. There's so many different uh, things you can specialise in. Mm. So I went down to the Met with the plan of doing two or three years, getting my probation under my belt, and then returning to, up to the Northwest. But the Met, it was just so exciting, so many things to do. I just loved it. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I ended up ended up staying to, for my entire service. Don't regret it one bit. The yeah, things that well, I've worked with, the things I've seen and done, it's just... Um, I know, it's mad, isn't it? Extraordinary. Yeah, I know, and I, I always say this, don't I, that, um, you know, the range of accents and, uh, you know, the, the number of people who come from all sorts of different backgrounds is is extraordinary, isn't it, in the Met? So, um, Absolutely. So let's just uh, talk about your, your early your early kind of, years i suppose um uh where did you get posted to first of all um funny because we were in, um we went down to the bar at hendon and i remember someone's coming in excited saying the postings are out the postings are out and back then i think we could apply for sort of our, our top three you know next that we wanted to go to or at least areas yeah and all the the the, the bloke the, the lads that I was friendly with in the bar, they were all sort of from Essex way in my class. I was in J class, and um, they were all excited. Stood up straight away and went running across to where the postings were were listed. And I just wasn't bothered because I just didn't know London. I don't, I'd only ever been to London, yeah, um, to go to Wembley to watch the Rugby League Cup finals. So they all went off, and I said, "Look, do you mind just have a look where I'm posted and just let me know." So they all went off excitedly. And because they were all from Essex and had applied for sort of East areas, like Bromford and Ilford and, and round there, I'd applied for the, those. I think those were my first two choices. And then um, for one area straight up the north, so I could get home um, okay, you know, easier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so they came back and they said, they were all excited chatting about where they were going. I said, did anyone look where I was going? And they said, oh, yeah. And they all looked really dour and, you know, concerned. And he says, oh, no. They said, you're going to Stoke Newington. You're going to be stabbed within a week. <laughs> and I was like, Stoke Newington? It sounds quite nice. <laughs> anyway, they started telling me that it was a rough part of Hackney and, you know, 
it was this and it was that. But you know what? It's the best thing that could have ever happened to me, without yeah. a doubt. Don't get me wrong, it was tough, especially, at, at, you know, at the beginning when you're trying to fit in and none of the other people will speak to you because you're, you're you're a newbie and they don't, they don't know if they can trust you or not. That was really tough. When, yeah. when so you'll, you'll have been a contemporary then of uh, one of my best mates and he was in my class at training school, John Fuchs. Do you remember John Fuchs? John Fuchs. Oh, yeah. very. He was, I was on the relief with John. Were you? Yeah, I saw him literally <laughs> about two years ago <laughs> up in Barnet. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. He's, he's a, what a lovely man. He's great, isn't he? Uh, yeah, yeah, he's he's one of my best mates, and um, yeah, I still stay in very close contact with him um, today. And um, oh. my, my kids, um, my kids often torture me and said, "When's Uncle John coming to see us again?" Yeah. Old so, folks. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, say hello to him, please, yeah. when you your next chat to him. Yeah, no, he's oh, man. Don't tell him I've said that. <laughs> I don't think he listens to the podcast anyway, so <laughs> nothing to worry about. Yeah. He's hardly, he barely knows how to read, never mind listen to things. <laughs> <laughs> no, he left as a DCI on a couple of years, same time as me. So, But um, yeah, Stoke Newington, I mean, I, 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 it has that reputation, doesn't it? It had that reputation in the force um, as just, uh, yeah, if anything, if anything bad was going to happen, either to a police officer or caused by a police officer, that was where it was going to happen, wasn't it? Absolutely, yeah. Well, I, uh, not long after I joined, um, Operation Jackpot happened, and that was because we had some corrupt members within the drug squad. Right. And it, it wasn't all the drug squad, no way was it, but there were definitely a couple of members in the drug squad who were, you know, selling information to drug dealers, stealing drug dealers' drugs, and, and reselling them back. Um, yeah. yeah, they're a curse on the curse on the organisation. Well, from that point forward, we couldn't send. We could, no matter how compelling the evidence was when we did, were dealing with a drug dealer, it just wouldn't even get charged by the CPS because even if it went, you know, it it, it was charged and went to Snowsbrook Crown Court, it would be thrown out. So we no one got charged. Yeah, that's an that's a funny one. You just reminded me, Snaresbrook. Snaresbrook Crown Court in those days had the reputation of being very very hostile to policing, but wasn't didn't it? It was very yeah. hard to get certain offences over the line at Snaresbrook Crown Court because of the nature of the mainly the, the the catchment area for juries, wasn't it? I think that was probably yeah, they were um, tough juries. Part, part of it, wasn't it? They were tough juries. To be honest, I had a good success rate at, at Snaresbrook, but it was it it wasn't hard. You know, mm. you had to do probably more than you would do in in some other um, catchment yeah. areas. Yeah, they were very, very that that local sort of catchment. They were very, very skeptical. Let's put it that way: skeptical about policing, yeah. weren't they? And and you can't blame them when it's you know when it's been proven that they've got some corrupt officers at Stoke Newington, then then you're you know you're linked to Stoke Newington. You can't blame the juries for having a little bit of skepticism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we deserve some of that, definitely. So you um, obviously gravitated into sort of more investigative roles. Uh, I saw a, a funny, that um, was quite impressive, but funny as well, LinkedIn post that you put on some time ago where you'd find one of your old diaries um, yeah. from, uh, and you'd sort of uh, photographed, a, I think it was a week of nights or something like that. So you're obviously a prolific thief taker i think that that was there's a lot of good arrests in there for robberies burglaries and all sorts of stuff yeah i got i was I, again really fortunate i went on to a, a good relief and i was lost at first you know lost 
there was me and Martin Mumford who went from training school directly to sea relief and um, after street duties, obviously. And we did literally a week of night, sorry, a week as station officer and then a week as jailer, a week of station officer and a week as jailer. And we sometimes got a treat and got out of the nick and went for a walk around one of the beats. Mm. And it wasn't until we started to get other probationers behind us that we actually started to get out and about. And then people started showing us, you know, how to do proper policing, how to, mm. what to look out for. Mm. Uh, and then I had some very good teachers, very good. And, you know, I just became proactive. It was, you know, why would you want to walk around 13 beat for eight hours mm. rather than go and find a prisoner? Yeah. Get yeah. yourself in. They Get yourself out again and get another prisoner near the end of the shift. Yeah. And it was like shooting fish in a barrel. Yeah. I mean, around Dalston in those days. Um, around the front line, which was um, Sandringham Road, which all the drug was supplied from. It was easy. So I got a good reputation for high arrests. Mm -hmm. I got my basic driving course quite quickly. And then I was fortunate again, they introduced sector policing. Right. And Inspector, it was Inspector Christie who pulled me into his office one day, and I only had about four years servicing. Mm -hmm. And he said, yeah, and he says, I've got an advanced car course, mm -hmm. if you're interested. And I'd literally just done my van course, and I was right. like, Yes, please. Yeah. And he said, look, he says, he says, it's going to upset some people because you're going to leapfrog them because it was always, you know, numbers of years. Yeah, yeah. You know, those more senior would get it before those more junior. He says, but I spoke to the sergeants and, I, and he said, more importantly, he said, I'm going to be taking care of, it was the Northern Beta Camp, which, which number it would have been, but it was the, the beat around Amherst Park and Seven oh. Sisters, and that's where all the prostitutes mm. hung out. Mm. And I found them a fantastic um, source of information. Mm. So I got on with most of the Toms really, really well. Yeah. I was Because I'd done a, a, a month's attachment with the vice um, unit. And I know people say, keep away from the three Ps and prostitutes are one of them. Mm. Um, but they were a really good form of information. And, you know, most of those people are really desperate. Yeah. Those yeah. ladies. They've, yeah. They're only taking drugs usually because they've had some adverse childhood experience. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and that's so he said, you're the only person who isn't on the vice squad who sticks people reg on regularly for curb crawling. And I said, well, if they're there and they're doing it, boss, I'll stick them on. And he says, well, look, if I give you this course, you promised you won't just ignore the good work that you're doing all the time. And I said, no, I'll carry on doing it exactly as I'm doing now. So he said, look, well, I'm going to give you the course. So, I, I you know, I got my advanced course with about four and a half wow that's really, at that time it was really awkward. early isn't it i mean yeah. i'd say typically in those days even for someone who was really really proactive and it was and those courses as you know were given to people who for for exactly that reason the people who were who were very proactive um they weren't yeah. given to someone who just wandered around for eight hours and did the bare minimum they would no. ne they would never get those courses would they no. um but yeah, I do imagine with four years, I imagine it did put a few people's noses out of joint. It, it did, but I, I did, I did go away and get a class one. Right. So, <laughs> oh well, there you go. Like, there you go. Have that. So all the old crusties were sitting there with the class twos, and I came out with a class one. So it, it did help a little bit. So you were super young then as an area but car driver. Super young, you know what a job. Turn around, um, Stoke Newington responding to suspects on robberies, you know, murders, uh, knifing, shootings, first on scene, usually always. Wow. Um, it was fantastic. Great. I tried to, I tried to explain, I can't just capture that whole thing in my book. And I don't think, 
tried really hard to kind of help people who are not in the police or even who are in the police but might be working in somewhere a bit sleepy to try and understand what that was like you know working in a busy area on a busy area car with a really good proactive driver you know and it, it it's very hard to to put it into words isn't it really the the adrenaline the uh seriousness that we took it we took it oh, very, yes. we took it very very seriously didn't we but at the same time we also had a real real laugh oh which, yes which kind of sounds counterintuitive doesn't it that how can you take something seriously when you're having a laugh well you can because yeah. when you're on it when you're when you're focused and you're dealing with people who are potentially very dangerous and they could stab you or shoot you um, or you're going to something that's pretty chaotic you are very very focused aren't you um, absolutely but in between those times you have a right laugh don't you you have to you have to make it enjoyable don't you have people who have jobs that they don't enjoy i don't know why they stick at them Mm. Um, and you, so you had to make it enjoyable so you did have a laugh and you did have that sort of dark sense of humor as well that went with it and that was a coping mechanism yeah. but yeah at the time the focus is a, is a, is just immense and the adrenaline is is immense yeah, yeah. Um, and when i say flying around stoke newton i'm not saying that you know like i was turned around like a you know hooligan mm. you know, didn't have a single accident throughout mm. my whole career um, mm. apart from one slight damage only and a, and a vicinity only uh, didn't hit any dogs, which sounds a bit, little bit. So why is he bothered about that? You know, that would have affected me because I'm, I'm a dog lover. Didn't yeah. hit any cats. Might have hit the old pigeon, but you know, driving it, flying around. Yes, definitely. Getting to yeah. these emergency calls. Yeah. The, the only thing that amazed me in was that there weren't a lot more accidents, really, because if you think about the speed that 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 you're doing uh, through busy London streets um, and the chaotic nature of some of the particularly the pursuits yeah. um it's it's on it's literally unbelievable to me that there weren't a lot more a lot more accidents you know i mean i was only in, i'd say in my entire career i was only in probably three shunts um to one of which I, I was driving when i was on surveillance that was just a bit of an unfortunate one where i stuffed somebody i was on a very i was on a catch-up on a follow and um this this lady was on a, going through a roundabout and she changed her mind halfway through the roundabout and 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 put and and went stood on the brakes in the middle of the roundabout and I stuffed her right up yeah. the back of her and there was no nothing I could do about that. Um, and the other two were were kind of on pursuits, you know, where cars were getting rammed and or being taken out on. I went, I remember on Lima two, uh, the Clapham area car. We were on a pursuit and a driver. Phil, who was an absolutely amazing, amazing thief taker as well, um, hit a hit a speed hump that he hadn't seen doing mm. about seventy miles an hour, <laughs> ripped out the bottom of the car. You know what I mean? Yeah. No one, no one injured, but the I'll never, I'll never forget it. You know, the car grinding to a standstill with steam coming out of it and and oil all over the road you know horrible but um anyway we dig we digress we could, talk, we could t tell those sort of stories all day long couldn't we oh absolutely 100 <laughs> but um so so obviously um from from being the area car driver where did you go from there um so i did quite a few things at stoke i did the surveillance unit crime squad and, and drug squad obviously not the corrupt one um after yeah. we cleaned the area up i was um i was asked to join um cib right 
So that was a bit of anti-corruption. I was asked to join their um, operational support unit. So that was, again, because I was I was surveillance trained at that point. I went because we had a surveillance unit at Stoughton Newington. Um, I joined CIB. So we were in the operational support team. So that was um, the DSs oh, run the job. In fact, the proactive side of it. One of our DSs was Mitch Ling. Oh, yeah. Who you mentioned Mitch, in the book. Yeah, 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 Mitch. Yeah. Lovely man. What a lovely man. <laughs> he's, the one, he's the one who ripped up my fixed penalty notice when I stuck on the eight-year-old in the, for, for unnecessary obstruction. Yeah, well, I wasn't completely happy with him when I read that. <laughs> but I can I can picture his face. And he, was, he, was, he, did it, he, he did it with such good humour. He was laughing his head off. Um, so anybody who hasn't read Sarah, very quickly, just to explain, in the book I describe, uh, an 80 year old woman who failed the attitude test massively um, abandoned her car in the middle of the street and um, because she had a disabled parking thing and I and I uh, gave her a ticket and she made a complaint against me and, and Mitch who was my sergeant at the time <laughs> ripped the ticket up and said it said it just wasn't worth it you know oh that's really funny isn't it so he, yes. so he was, so he he was, was on, one of the, he was one of the DSEs so the DSEs you know they took on the investigation and they'd come to us for some operational support so it might have been you know, putting a camera into an address, um, trying to find out where someone lived, uh, might have even been putting a recording device on a job line. So we'd go and do all that work for them and try and get them the evidence they needed to prove or disprove whatever was going on. Really interesting. Really interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'd imagine you must have uh, you must have dealt with some real proper wrongings in those days. Yeah. No, there the were... It was at that point I got my motorcycle surveillance course as well. Now, that is the best driving course. Oh, God. It's also the most a, dangerous. A motorcycle. Yeah, I didn't do it for long, to be honest, because at that time. So it would have been about um, two, the early 2000s. There were a number of Mets, um, four twos, um, mm. that got knocked off, lost legs, killed. And yeah. I, I was just, had a young family at that time. And I just said, yeah, it's not yeah. for me. Also, I no. Well, it was one. I mean, I knew a lot of the four twos, the uh, surveillance bikers. Um, and I don't know if this is an urban myth or not, but apparently it was the one role in the Met Police that they literally couldn't do a risk assessment on. Because it was off the scale in terms of the level of risk that people were taking. And I think they had a they had some sort of risk assessment tool and I think it blew the machine up or something, you know, when they, when they, when they tried to do it because it was so dangerous. You know? Yeah, I only did, I did it probably for about two years um, after a couple of near misses and it was my own team that nearly took me out. I don't know if that's trying to tell me something or not, but mm. very often it was your own team that you had to look out for because they were so focused on the target. They, they yeah. weren't checking the wing mirrors for you coming yeah. through. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. um yeah, so I did that for about two years. But yeah, some interesting jobs there. Um so when I was in CIB, they did a, a, a reshuffle and I went on to the integrity testing unit. Oh, okay. Which was I remember, really I, I remember when that all came in actually, when they, yeah. they made it they made it very clear that they were going to be going out and deliberately doing integrity testing. And I wouldn't be surprised if that whole regime, and we can talk about that later on, I wouldn't be surprised if that regime was probably starting again to literally set out traps to get people, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a lot of people, you know, I used to hear my, I used to meet up with my friends, obviously, that I'd left behind, and they used to say, oh, yeah, we've heard that you're doing this and that, and, you know, driving down the high street in a car, driving a little bit dodgy, then having a swig of whiskey before you were stopped and seeing if they breathalyzed you. It's nothing like that at all. There, mm. were, there were basically two types of tests. There was an intelligence-led test mm. where there was good intelligence that people were corrupt. So they could have been, you know, working for drug dealers, using prostitutes, stealing. 
Mm. Really solid intelligence. So we'd just set up a test along the same lines as the intelligence and see what they what they did when this mm. test was put in front of them. And we were hoping that on most occasions where the intelligence was solid, that they might fail them so we could get rid of them out mm. of the job. Mm. And then there were there were random ones, but they weren't testing people. They were testing the systems and processes that right. existed within the net. So that was like lost property. How was how was the lost property being dealt with? Where were the where was the um, <clears throat> where was it getting blocked? Where yeah. was it where was it not? How could we deal with it better? So it's testing the processes and systems. We weren't looking for any people to so fail. If you had a, so, for example, if you had a nick where stuff was going missing on a regular basis and there was no obvious candidate for who was taking it. Not even that, Ian. Not really? even that. It was literally testing the processes and systems. So, you know, we we didn't ever want anyone to fail at any one of, of those tests because it was a really simple test that just mm. followed the property and, and, and saw how it went through the system. Mm. No one ever failed one. Really? Yeah. yeah no one ever failed one. Mm. Well, that's, re- that's reassuring to know. I mean, and this is the this is the thing, isn't it? And again, we'll come on to talk about we'll talk about the David Carrick thing later on, I'm sure, because it's very it's very much sort of of the moment. It, the new that news broke yesterday. Um, Awful. You know, I I um I am as confident as I possibly can be that the vast vast majority of police officers past and present are good people and and sadly uh, the whole organization is let down by a relatively small um number of individuals who are in the job for all the wrong reasons and you know it's reassuring to know that even way back then um you were you were not finding people falling foul of traps i suppose effectively put in their way to try and identify dishonest behavior i suppose absolutely and they could have fallen foul of it so we'd go to a random police officer in the street or we'd go to a random police station you know front office and we'd hand in their bag of property it might contain some back then some dvds some videotapes some cds and you know we were booking it in to see what happened to the property not to look to catch anyone else and and nobody mm. fell for all of that so they, mm. they took it back to the station or they booked it into the property system mm. Mm. so yeah, yeah reassuring yeah. interesting interesting so um so anyway let's get on let's get on to talking about drugs so obviously at some point your path you're clearly on the investigative very much on the investigative side of things by now um but at some point drugs become a more um you know a key part of what you do on a day-to-day basis i mean what was your first job that took you kind of down that route my very first arrest after street duties was for cultivation of cannabis Mm. um so it would have been it might have then been into 1990 after i'd finished street duties um i went to an address that had been burgled and you know, went in and he had a grow in his front room. The victim of the burglary had a grow in his front room. So when he came, he worked in the city. When he came home, it was on a new development down in Clapton. I said, do you want the, the good news or the bad news? He said, there's good news. I said, yeah, the good news is you've been burgled. <laughs> the bad news is you're under arrest for growing cannabis. And and at that, at that point, you know, I was, I'd had my training. I'd had my 20 weeks at Hendon. I'd done my street duties, but I was still very, very wet. And fortunately, I ended up going back to Dalston Police Station because 
Stoke Newton was being reconstructed back then. Went to Dalston Police Station and this, it was a DS actually from Northern Ireland, DS mm. Johnson. He took me under his wing and said, look, Ian, I'll walk you through this, but you're dealing with it. Mm. So, you know, very early in service, I was I was dealing with and taking to court, potentially, um, someone for cultivating cannabis. Mm. My very first arrest. Right. Then after that, because it was Hackney, and that's where crack was first recovered in in the in the late eighty in the late eighties from mm. from Hackney, there was loads of crack and heroin users. Um, so it it was like shooting fish in a barrel because mm. of the corruption that existed when that was exposed. Mm. We set up Operation Teen, and that was to clean up the area. So that again was the first uh, multi-targeted test purchase operation down the busy A10 because because the drug dealers knew they were never going to get charged. They were just dealing at will and dealers from other areas were coming to start new to, de to deal because it was safe for them. It's a safe space. Mm. So operation team cleaned that up and that would be the model that operation Welling would be focused around. Right. Um, fantastic operation. <clears throat> but why I, why I really got into, into drugs was a call I attended when I was in uniform and I had about three or four years in, and it was a call to um, the sound of breaking glass woman screaming sounds of a disturbance and so i went to um went to the venue first on scene with a with a, a brand new probationer um, um, paul and it was a row of terraced houses typical london street mm. the front garden was very small and it had been turned into crazy paving at the front the whole of the crazy paving was covered in shattered glass and in the middle of the shattered glass was a naked man who was crouched down in the fetal position, you know, when the movie Terminator comes on. Wasn't the chief superintendent, was it? No, <laughs> wasn't. <laughs> so he was naked and he was sat in the middle of this crazy pavement surrounded by glass. And he'd come out of the first floor window, which was oh, a bed. Oh, and he didn't have a scratch on him, not a scratch. And he was completely silent and unresponsive, but alive, very much alive. Right, okay. Joined by another unit, stayed with him because we could hear a woman screaming from inside. Kicks open the front door. It, it became apparent it was split into two flats, a, a ground and a first floor, mm. up the stairs to the first floor. Um, we struggled to get that that internal door open, because as we got to the top of the stairs, it was immediately, immediately on our right. Paul had just left the army and was the, when he'd left the army, was the reigning powerlifting champion. So he had huge, huge power in his thighs. Yeah, yeah. He put his back against the wall and prized it. I was nudging it with my shoulder and it popped in. Went inside. The woman's just crying, my babies, my babies. And I'm thinking, I mm, don't like the sounds of this. And he'd locked the bedroom from the inside and she was in the living room. Kicked open the bedroom door quite easily. Went inside the room and there were two babies in the room. Mm. One was on the bed and one was in a crib, which was at the foot of the bed um, and a few feet away. Both identically wrapped, identical size, and they were twin twins, boy and a girl. Mm. Um, so I said to Paul check that baby because the, the room was completely tidy it was it was a little bit like walking into a fresh hotel room everything was tucked in everything was neat and tidy and it wasn't like the kind of yeah. premises we were used to going into you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. To, be, to be frankly honest at that time I'm sure it's different now I went to the baby in the crib picked the baby up started moving unwrapped the blanket it had a baby grow on and a cap um, it was moving, it was responsive, it was fine. Put it down, turned to Paul, and Paul is just, you know, completely static. And he's got mm. blood on his on his left hand that's been on the baby's head at the back. God. 
I was like, oh my God, put the baby on the bed, unwrapped the blanket and it had a, a stab mark in its baby grill and it was flowered oh, in a big circle. Um, and it turned out that um, the father, Derek Winter, he'd been it was a Sunday, he'd been drinking and smoking cannabis all day mm. and he'd suffered from um, cannabis-induced psychosis. Oh my God. And he had this hidden dislike of females Mm. and that led him to stabbing his baby daughter to death oh my god and jumping out the front window but before he jumped out the front window he'd redressed the baby i mean it was just when you think oh, about god. it it's, it's just mad, isn't it? well it is it is mad it is literally mad isn't it it is literally mad um she actually put a complaint in because she said there's no way my husband would have done that so the police so he's jumped, so he's he's the naked man he's jumped out the window. he's the naked man he's jumped out the window and he's just completely unresponsive she goes a little bit, not like using the word mad, but she obviously loses yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He says, well, the police must have done it because Derek would never have done that. So we actually get a complaint for murder for that Oh, one. my God. That was passed to the city police. They didn't even interview us. They said, look, we've gone round and we've had a word with her and she's she's come to realise that actually you didn't murder her. So we never even got interviewed for it. He went to the old Bailey, pleaded guilty by diminished um, responsibility. Mm. But we're giving you know, CPR to a dead baby girl, and she oh, was dead, damn. was was the most traumatic thing that I ever did. And from that point on, I, I just became anti-drugs. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. It's very easy to say, you know, oh, all drugs should be available to everybody, you know, yeah. legalise them, make them available, take it out the hands of the OCGs, and all these arguments are nonsense. Drugs are banned, literally, because they are really harmful, potentially. And, and I know that cannabis is relatively harmless, mm. you know, to older people, it's very harmful to young people because yeah. of the way the brain develops and how long that takes. But even yeah. cannabis can result yeah. in things like that. Yeah. Which... I mean, that's a very powerful story and it very eloquently explains, you know, the reality of what police officers have to deal with. I mean, this is not the stuff that the stuff that we deal with isn't stuff that's read in a book or an academic journal or this is no. real this is real life stuff that's happening you know day in and day out up and down the country um maybe not as extreme as what you've just described but certainly you know other stuff that is very very shocking when you see it you know the the impact that drugs have on people uh you know I often think about a girl who used to be a police officer in the West Midlands. Uh, she ended up uh, getting involved in a bad crowd. Um, she ended up getting sacked, I think, for, I can't remember whether she was sacked or whether she resigned, but one way or the other, she left the police. Very, very fit, um, physically fit girl, had been a semi-professional athlete in her past. She got hooked on drugs and ended up um, as one of the most prolific female criminals in the West Midlands and was sort of like a, a top target for most, for several, you know, um, uh, command units around yeah. that part of the West Midlands. So to see someone go on that journey from being, you know, in a good job, uh, well-respected, um, to basically a someone who had, lost everything and was in a real terrible state uh was was really quite shocking but 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 here's the thing and this is this is the this is the this is what i'm interested in just 
exploring because you because you touched on it a minute ago and i think it's important to kind of have this conversation probably do you think um that the the war on drugs has been lost i mean there's there's never been a war on drugs in this country america might have held one you know against the cartels in south america when was the war on drugs hmm. i suppose maybe okay maybe to clarify that are our current um laws around possession and use of drugs helping or hindering the fight against organized crime because my yeah. my view is I and mean, i think i said it in the book um I, I personally think that we should treat drug addicts as uh, as having a medical condition and treat them with prescribed opioids and put them on a treatment program um and then and then simultaneously with that there's like a parallel approach be incredibly like ruthless against the criminal side of drug dealing absolutely 100 that is the direction and that is the direction the government are taking at the moment you know there's a lot of funding gone into drugs um to tackle drugs but not only tackle the supply but also to reduce the harm and and users of drugs they should be treated like victims they should be given you know there's heroin assisted treatments out there hat and it's very effective where it's being deployed and 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 used it's it's proven to be very very effective so that is giving people who are heavily addicted access to medical grade heroin prescribed by a doctor and it stops them going to the illicit um, supplier do you do you find do you find when people are on those programs that they sort of try and supplement that with illegal drugs as well because that's, oh, that that's the risk isn't it that was the fear and that is that was a you know that was kind of my fear and i was like well let's wait and see are they just going to treat the prescribed drugs as an extra and, and it isn't it isn't at all that it just helps them to cope with their life and i think a lot of people misunderstand why people are using heroin and crack cocaine a lot of people thinking oh they just want to get high they, they don't just want to get high they're actually trying to cope with the yeah, pain they're self-medicating they? yeah they're self-medicating a lot of them They've got some traumatic things that they're trying to forget about as well especially a lot of the female users they're trying to usually forget about some kind of you know event abuse, that or yeah. series events yeah typically abuse mm -hmm. yeah so definitely treat treat those that are addicted as a medical problem and try and help them come off the drugs and, and cure their addictions if that's possible and but then be absolutely totally ruthless with the organized criminal groups and the urban street gangs that are involved in the supply of, of the drugs i think part of the problem with this and again i don't want to sort of go down this rabbit hole too far because it's so politically sensitive is that the war not the war let's take the word war the 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 effort to tackle drug related organized crime has become conflated with the issue of race in the UK. And that I think has been incredibly unhelpful. So if you look at the, the, the sort of epidemic of gun and knife crime over the last six or seven years, you look at the, the rate, what is it, young black men or something like between 16 and 24 something up to 24 times more likely to be murdered in the uk and in the inner cities than young white men um 
and very often, as we know, sadly, they are often uh, shot or stabbed by other young black men. So I, my worry, I suppose, is that that whole issue of the, F, the, the effort to try and, you know, crack down on, on all of this stuff is going to be hindered by a sort of an ideological um, sort of efforts by activists to portray the police as targeting people because of the colour of the skin rather than what they're actually doing. Does that all make sense? It makes sense, yeah. Uh, I suppose it, you can sort of tie it to the stop and search um, mm. headlines that we see, you know. And yes, proportionate-wise, according to population, police probably do. And well, they do, don't they, stop more people mm. with black skin. But then again, if you look proportionate-wise, most of them are the victims. Mm. You know, crime. So it's kind of the people that are shouting the loudest about the police are racist, mm. kind of doing a disservice to the people they're trying to protect because yeah. the reason the police are searching those people is because statistically wise, they are more likely to be the victims mm. and mm. all the suspects of the offence. Yeah. And yeah, that's yeah. complicated in itself because most of that is down to deprivation and poverty as to Absolutely. why. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. I don't. I've, whole... I've made this very, very clear that, you know, you've got to be very. I, I think people haven't police officers, senior police officers have been, I think, far too defensive on that issue. What they should have been saying, I, in my view, is we are doing this because yeah. we want to protect young people. Um, and th there are all sorts of really complex reasons why this is going on. Yeah, It's mostly around um, deprivation, many multi-generational deprivation, low, you know, standards of poor mental health, um, you know, addiction, all sorts of domestic abuse, you know, absent fathers, all sorts of complicated reasons. But yes. anyway, I said I was going to wasn't going to go down that rabbit hole, and I'm I'm absolutely my feet are now sticking out of the of the of the, of the <laughs> hole. Aren't they? Back out. <laughs> exactly, I need someone to pull me out by my feet. Anyway, so so anyway, take it. Go back to what we were talking about. Um, yeah, the the effort to tackle illegal drugs and organized crime. So, so I think we're pretty. I think we're probably on the same page on that one, aren't we? It's a yeah. dual, it's a twin track approach, isn't it? Yeah, got to be serious against um, serious and organized crime. Got to go after their assets, which is a big thing, you know. Because I've I've dealt with a lot of um, organized crime groups, you know, lots a lot of their members up for for trafficking drugs. But you know what? The reaction when you take their drugs versus their cash is completely different. They're a little bit shrugging the shoulders when you take a, a large, you know, can be a few kilos of coke from them. They're, they're not happy, don't get me wrong. But when you take the equivalent cash from them, they're more upset. Mm. Because there's a lot of money in drug dealing. Yes, there is. Of course there is. That's why they do it. But they have to work relatively hard to acquire that cash, that yeah. bundle of cash. So that bundle of cash, it might be the same value as three kilos of cocaine. But yeah. they've probably had to to have sold, you know, twenty or thirty kilos to get that cash. Yeah, yeah, and so, and in, and in terms of in terms of that whole proceeds of crime stuff, um, and you're in and out of courts literally on a weekly basis. Are you seeing that that proceeds of crime, unexplained wealth, orders, all of that kind of stuff being used to its full extent? Would you say? 
Um, to its full extent, probably not. It is used really, really well. Um, it can be really effective, but obviously the defendants who usually have got some wealth can hire really good barristers and they can put up really, you know, decent fights to try and protect their assets. So it can be quite a lengthy, drawn-out process. I, I think they could do things to speed speed it up, maybe, the whole process. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it sort of ends up being almost like a trial within a trial, doesn't it, really? So the, the, issue, yeah. the issue becomes, a, it's, a, it's a, you know, I'm, I'm no expert on financial crime or, or proceeds of crime act or anything like that, but my, my limited experience of it is that it, it becomes almost like a second trial very often, doesn't it? Yeah, they'll deal with the trial, they'll deal with the evidence and the offences, um, and then they'll go on, they'll set the time limits and then go on to deal with the proceeds of crime element mm -hmm. to it. Mm -hmm. So it can be very lengthy, very drawn out. Yeah. So you um, you got involved uh, in a sort of the organised crime element of sort of. So you've, you're as your career went on. To my understanding, you got involved in um, you're the top tier, I suppose, of of drug importation type jobs. Um, would that be fair to say? Yeah, two thousand and four. Yeah, I've actually just passed my Osprey Part Two. So it was, you know, I was about to go and, and become a sergeant. And then my perfect job became available when the Met set up the Middle Market Drugs Partnership, which which now it's still going. It's now known as the Organised Crime Partnership. And at that time in 2004, that was working with customs officers. And we were a team that would act on fast time intel. So the very first job we had, um, we were actually down at the Warren having a training day and the equivalent DI in customs came in and said, is anyone free for a job? And straight away, hands up. Um, he says, right. He said, head over to Thoric Services. There's going to be a handover of cannabis. Hmm. Okay. Back then we had the, um, we were driving a customs fleet, no blue lights or two tones. So we were honking the horn and flashing the lights, but it was myself and a good friend of mine, Chris and Toby, a customs officer in the back. So we flew around to Thurrock. Long story short, we managed to ID the customer for the handover. Mm. Followed him, because we didn't know where the handover was going to take place. He went to the lorry park at Thurrock Services. Um, chucked out the footies. They saw the meat. Three holdalls come out of a, um, a coach, a passenger coach. Mm. The driver had been round the war graves, taking a load of old pensioners round the war graves of France and Belgium. Mm. Uh, he'd obviously collected these three holdalls and, and driven them over. He dropped all his passengers off, and then he was meeting this guy who was from Bournemouth, mm. a senior member of an OCG down there. Locked them up, opens one of the holdalls. We're all looking at each other, and we're all saying, that doesn't look like cannabis. And, and it, it wasn't. It was, it was 75 kilos of coke. Oh, shit. And that was the first job of the middle market. <clears throat> so I'd gone from sort of working drugs, Stoke Newington. And if we had half an ounce back, we were like high-fiving each other and yes, you know, yeah, telling yeah, the yeah, DCI yeah. how good we were. We went from that to first job within, a, within I'd say, two hours, recovering 75 kilos of cocaine. And it was just bonkers. And it was like jobs like that almost every week. Wow. You know, Sometimes it was a single kilo handover. Sometimes it was, you know, hundreds of of kilos of, of cocaine and, and um, heroin. And so, where was most of this stuff coming, transiting? It was coming from continental Europe. 
yeah, coming from continental Europe. At the time, it was Rotterdam and Spain were the main right. importers of cocaine. Um, now that's switched now to Belgium. So it's Antwerp, the port of Antwerp, where most of it's coming through. Right. And that's all down to corruption. The whole global supply chain of drugs could not function without corruption. Right. And it's corruption of officials, corruption, corruption of workers at the ports. Uh, but yeah, so currently it's Antwerp that's overtaken. Have, uh, have you gone abroad to do um, jobs in the past, or did you did you stay mainly within the UK? Yeah, I've, I've been um, not to work um, proactively on jobs, but I've been on react reactionary um, inquiries. So I've been to quite a few countries within Europe. I've been as far as Jamaica and to um, California worked a week with the DEA in California. They had a Mexican gangbangers who were sending cocaine over to, to London. So we locked them up in London, but we had a lot of loose ends over in California. So I went over there for a week, which was great to, you know, get an idea of their drugs market and how the Mexicans, which who are massive now, you know, even more so back then in um, not just cocaine, cannabis, yeah. but also crystal meth yeah. and now fentanyl, which they're flooding America with. I mean, so anyone who's anyone who's watched Narcos on is it Netflix? I think it is Netflix. Yeah, yeah. Netflix. Um, well, will will understand. I mean, anyone who's listening to this who hasn't watched Narcos, just watch Narcos. I mean, right from the right from the very first series where it's Pablo Escobar in Colombia, all the way through to the Cali cartel in Mexico. I think on sort of yeah, series, series two, three or four, really brilliant stuff, isn't it? But yeah. really, ter absolutely terrifying, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, these people do not mess around, do they? Oh. Um, so the point I was coming to there was, um, to what extent, if at all, did you ever personally fear that you could be targeted by some of these people that you were looking at? Not really, because of the way we worked, it was all. I was all quite. Um, I was quite happy, quite secure with my own security, and people finding out who I was and where I lived. Um, I did re receive a an, an Osman warning once, and that was whilst I was at Crown Court at trial. They. Mm. He was from this. He was from South East London, and he fancied himself as you know a Mister Big, and he was He was in organised crime, but for me, he wasn't a Mister Big, and. Mm. He was on remand. It was a, a trial for he imported 1.5 tons of cannabis from Spain. Yeah, they used the cover load, and it the cover load was was bricks. Mm. Anyway, there was very little evidence against him when we started the investigation. We took out his his lower ranking um, members, if you like, a couple of patsies, um, and and managed to inquiries through to be able to prove that the person. That received the cannabis into the UK um, and was taking delivery of it. He was in contact with this defendant at the time it was taken. He was taking direct instructions from him, so he was the owner of it. We were saying, and I received halfway through trial when it wasn't looking good for him. Mm. I received a phone call to get an Osman warning saying, "Look, we've we've had threats that someone's looking to try and get someone to take you out." Mm. And I said, look, I said, don't worry, he's a bit of a joke. And he says, I'm glad you've said that. He says, because everyone who he's spoken to, because he was on the prison phone, mm. which we can obviously get access to, mm. everyone that he's spoken to has just laughed at him. So mm. he wasn't a serious threat. Yeah. And that's the thing, um, isn't it? I mean, this is what, I mean, I think generally speaking, I mean, it's not always the case, unfortunately, but generally speaking, organized crime organized criminals do not want to 
take out police officers. No. Because, because they know that they will be living in a world of pain for the rest of their lives until yeah. until they end up behind bars for a very long time. Because because it's a business model, isn't it? And and why would you do something um, to disrupt such a lucrative business? It would be self-defeating for them, wouldn't it? Absolutely. 100%. It is exactly like you say, whether you are a low-level street dealer all the way up to the Mexicans, you know, mm. it's a business model for the supply of a product. Mm. So any heat that you bring upon yourself is not good for business. And that's why we don't see a lot of violence within organised criminal groups unless something goes wrong and it's... And it's yeah. I mean, there are exceptions uh, to, to that. Obviously, there's yeah. the horrific, that absolute maniac Dale Cregan up in in um, in Manchester, you know, who ended up taking out the two female officers, you know, shooting and using hand grenades. I mean, he was obviously completely off his head, wasn't he? Absolutely, 100%. And, and we find most violence is towards the lower end. It's, it's that street dealing. It's the county lines. That's where most of the violence is focused. Mm. When it does go wrong in organised crime, don't get me wrong, it does involve hand grenades and RPGs and kidnappings, tortures, but most of the violence is down the lower end, um, lower end of the supply chain, without mm. a doubt. Mm. And you've become uh, somewhat of an authority on the whole county lines kind of model, haven't you? Yeah, well, I was, yeah, I've been I've been looking at county lines for nearly three decades. A lot of people think, Ian, that county lines is, it's only been around for the last six, seven, ten years. It hasn't. We had gangs, some of our gangs, Pembury, Holly Street, uh, London Fields from Hackney. They were taking drugs to far-flung places, Hastings, uh, Margate. They were taking drugs to these places in the late um, 1990s. Hmm. But what's happened is it's like all drug supply does. It's just developed over time. Back then, they didn't have mobile phones. So they weren't sending out the broadcast message to advertise their drugs, and they weren't receiving the orders over the phone. They weren't exploiting young children and vulnerable adults. They were doing it all in-house. Right. Well, that particular model's been around for nearly three decades. What's so happened? So the main difference is that they tend not to get their hands dirty at the sharp end of things. Is that is that is that what we're saying then? Well, you've had the you've obviously had you know everyone's got a mobile phone now, so that it's developed. They don't have to hang around on a street corner now. They just send the broadcast message out and wait for the order to come in. Then they'll dispatch out from an address and go and sort the customer out to take the cash. Mm. So the introduction and the and the, the availability of mobile telephones to the drug users mm. has made them change their business model. But it's mm. still it's still a county line. Back then they used to call it a line. They used right. to call it the Margate line, the Hastings line. But they weren't referring to the telephone number. They were referring to the supply line. Right. So the supply line to Hastings. Right. And now the line is now known as the number. It's the telephone number. But it's just developed over time. Mm. So it's not a new thing. It's just... Yeah. They've developed and they, they continue to develop. Yeah. No two county lines are the same. They all operate in some slightly different format. And they've now started for a number of years now, I'd say for at least 10 years, just to exploit young children and vulnerable adults. And that is completely in line with the business model. The business model is to reduce risk, mm. and reduce risk by passing it on to other people. And that's exactly what they're choosing to do. They're passing the risk on to these young people who they can exploit and control. So you you um, were the kind of in-house expert on a lot of this stuff prior to leaving the Met, isn't that right? And then you um, 
you were like a sort of internal expert witness, I suppose, for the Met. And then you set up a business when you left, which is now, just remind me, is it expert witness? What's it called again? Expert witness services. Expert witness services. So yeah. that's, your, that's your business, which um, uh, looks like it's doing extremely well. You're obviously very busy. Yeah, um, I'm really happy. And so where does where do most of your referrals come from now? Um, so I'd say my work at the moment is split 50-50. So 50% is training. So it's training other, you know, law enforcement from across the UK right. how to become and perform the role of the expert witness because it's a very powerful role and there's a lot of responsibilities that go with it. Is that a for, is that a formal title? Do you have to be a presumably you have to be accredited? It's not accredited. I was on the Drug Expert Witness Association um, committee and it was something that I was always pushing for with the College of Policing to try and get it accredited because there's mm. some training out there which, quite frankly, is not fit for purpose. Right. So it's not accredited. Um, that work is still ongoing with the College of Policing, so hopefully that will come in at some point. Which presumably, sorry to interrupt, but presumably that would cut across to other areas of specialist areas, such as firearms, such as, I don't know, sexual absolutely. abuse or whatever, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. The role of the expert witness. If, if, you, if you are expertise in something, you can perform the role of the expert witness. The way it works at the moment is there's no accreditation. There's no accredited courses for law enforcement. But it's the trial judge that literally accredits you each and every time you provide a report in any trial. So the, the trial judge is the gatekeeper, if you like. The trial judge will look at your CV, look at your report, and he he or she will say yay or nay as to whether you, you're allowed to enter the courtroom and, and give your evidence in front of the jury. So it's the trial judge that accredits, accredits you at the moment. And presumably, um, so you will be providing uh, expert testimony or reports to what prosecution only or prosecution and defense at the moment it's prosecution only and i've, I've no intention of going over to the defense but it, it's always an option at the end of the day if you're an expert witness you're only assisting the court to understand the evidence that's that's available and apparent so you 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 know your opinion should not change whether you're working or instructed by the prosecution or the defence. Yeah, I don't suppose the defence would be in a huge rush to get someone uh, who's basically going to do the legs of their, their client, are they? We do find that some of the... There are some good defence experts out there and, you know, they do a, an essential job. You know, they are an essential part of the whole trial that the defence are allowed to have their own experts. Um, but there are some out there who are clearly hired guns and they will say what the client wants them to in order to get them off or to reduce the sentence. But conversely, I've got to balance that, Ian. There are some expert, witness, expert witnesses within law enforcement who are very prosecutorial and find it hard to remain impartial. Right, they can't yeah. take that police head off and put yeah. on the impartial expert witness head. Yeah, yeah. So it's good and bad on both sides, to be fair. Yeah. So a lot. So the so the the the, the business is, I say, it's obviously doing well. You've have, you've got a very impressive list of um, regular customers, which I suppose which is what you would expect. The regional organised crime units and the national crime agency and um, uh, customs and excise or HMRC as they're now called. Um, so how how does the mechanism of you getting tasked with a particular job? How does that all work? Um. So, so 50% is training. So that's training people to, to perform the role and doing the CPD for existing expert witnesses in organised crime and county lines. Mm -hmm. 
part of the training as well, which I've just started um, late last year, was um, it's drug trafficking advanced insights. So it's trying to condense all my knowledge over 30 odd years and giving it to these new investigators mm. to give them, a, you know, it's the course I wish I'd had when I was young in service right. to, to explain how the drugs industry works and what to look out for, what's really compelling evidence within a drugs case. Mm-hmm. And I also bring in some quality guest speakers to give mm-hmm. them more valuable insights. So that's the training aside. Right. When we get onto the expert witness um, role and providing evidence as the expert witness, I'll just get I'll get contacted from forces who are either struggling because of capacity or struggling because it's so specialised. So I do venetic cases, which are the, is the Encro chat, the encrypted messages that was seized under Operation Venetic. Right. Um, I'll do those cases. I'll do the complex county lines one where there's been some kind of exploitation, uh, modern slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll do regular ones when forces are struggling with demand for one reason or another. So give me a give an example of a typical tasking that you'd be given to support a investigation slash prosecution. What are the typical things that they will want you to give your expert? Um, opinion on so it could be um it could be a, a county lines case where that people have been charged with modern slavery human trafficking and it might be a victim who says i've not been exploited i've not been trafficked mm-hmm. so what i will do is i will look at the the evidence really complicated case and i will explain about the exploitation that can exist within the county lines mm-hmm. and i'll point at the evidence in the case and i'll say what might indicate that a person may have been trafficked or may not have been trafficked whether they were willing um, or not mm-hmm. and then i'll leave it up to the jury to decide mm-hmm. whether that person's been trafficked or not the role of the expert isn't to tell the jury what decision they should come to it's just to point out the evidence and let them decide Right. Okay. So it's around. It's explaining uh, in layperson's terms uh, to try and sort of demystify and educate um, the jury as to uh, what's actually going on here. Absolutely. Rather than trying to look at a load of evidence, which makes a lot of sense, maybe to the SIO or to the people involved in the case, but but to a jury, it could be very confusing, couldn't it? Absolutely. So, you know, as I say, so you're impartial, so you're not just working for the prosecution or defence. So I'll point out the evidence that might suggest that that person's not been trafficked. You know, so any text messages that might be in slang. So if you get the potential victim who's written a text message to the to the, to the defendant saying, look, get me on, get me onto the OT, mm. that is get me onto the, the county line. So they're asking to go onto it. So they're not perhaps not being exploited. Right. That's slightly different with, with when it comes to to children because you know it, it's very different for children because they, they cannot consent to their trafficking. Yeah. So so there's a big overlap. So that's interesting. So that's an interesting one for me. There's a big overlap then between your expertise around drugs and your expertise around human trafficking. So you clearly need to be very knowledgeable at both of those things in terms of the actual. Um, methodology for of a better word around international shipments and importation of drugs because there's a there's as many methods i suppose for doing that as there are you know it's it almost limitless isn't there really in terms of the ingenuity 
that crime yeah. gangs will use to get drugs into the UK or around the world. Um, would that form part of your expert testimony? Absolutely. So it's it, they are subjects I cover on the organised crime um, CPD course, all the methodologies that are used. Rip on, rip off involves corruption at, at two ports, the port that's sending the drugs and the ports that's, that's receiving them. And that means that they have got a, a door, as they call it, out of one country and into another. Um, there are there are drop-offs from container ships where the crew, you know, have the drugs on board knowingly. And when they when they're nearing the port, they will drop the drugs off overboard. I don't know if you've seen seen it or not, but recently there's been a lot of drugs washing up on beaches. Um and have a risk with there were there were a couple of incidents. But that is the typical drop-off's gone wrong, where they drop the drugs off the side. They they usually got like a, a, a mobile phone or a tracker mm. in the consignment, and someone will just leave the shore on a jet ski or a small rib, and they'll look to go and collect it. And when we get the drugs washed up on shore, that's usually where that's gone wrong, and they've missed it. Mm. Yeah. And then we've got we've got a lot of drugs that come in just in containers, you know, using a cover load or concealed within the container itself. Then we've got lots of small-scale sort of mules or stuffers or packers um, come so across. People, people are secreting it in their body cav body cavities. Yeah, or just literally just packing it, taping it to their bodies. Mm. Um, yeah, but we're talking about smaller amounts there. The larger bulk amounts come across. Um, they either land directly into the port in container, um, mm. in containers, the 40 or 20-foot containers that travel around the world every day millions of them hmm. or they'll be on the back of a hgv and they'll come through our ports you know where, where tend to be i don't suppose this is i mean you can tell me uh you know it might be operationally sensitive i don't think it probably is but um typically what are the who where are the hot spots around the uk for 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 stuff turning up in containers would it be the usual places like the, the big container ports yeah your big container ports are so the largest ones in Immingham, which is up by hull and then you've got all you've got Harwich, you've got all the ports that come down that eastern side, all the way down to to Dover. And then you've got um, Portsmouth and Plymouth. You've got the uh, the port of Liverpool, the port of London, Tilbury, all your usual ones that you'd expect. Um, what what sort of percentage? Sorry, I'm firing questions. I'm just interested. And um, what sort of percentage uh, of seizures, uh, successful seizures of large quantities, would be intelligence led versus? discovery by proactive things like x-ray dogs and all of that so there's like how many are like we know this is coming in it's going to be uh landing at immingham at 4 a.m from antwerp or whatever versus a dog finding it i wouldn't know ian i'd be completely you know guessing if i tried to attempt to answer that okay. i have no idea yeah it'd be interesting to know that though wouldn't it because yeah because the um I mean, I know, I know, obviously, as a result, as much to do with human trafficking into the country. Obviously, the the security measures at ports are, have been massively beefed up, haven't they, over the last sort of, I don't know, maybe 10, 15, 20 years. But, um, but yeah, certainly, I would imagine that, uh, you know, the National Crime Agency and HMRC would be would be picking up those from intelligence jobs as well, wouldn't they? Yeah, I mean, if you look at, for instance, for the, the port of Antwerp, um, where most of our cocaine arrives into, they only manage to scan 2% of the containers. Oh, God. So the, you know, the cartels, they know, let's send 20 containers. If they get one or even two, we're still, you know, it's still worth the risk. God. 
So two percent they managed to spend. That's depressing, isn't it? It is in Antwerp at the moment. It is turning in um, to a narco state. You know, the levels of violence in Antwerp are just horrific. The fighting is going on there. They're in Rotterdam. They're very close to each other. The uh, yeah, they're all fighting over the supply. And, and, the it, the lead, of, and this is you know, if, in terms of tracing it back to sort of end source. Are we talking? Um, I mean, it's a it's a it's a it's a very complex ecosystem, isn't it? Everything from the street dealers or the people, the kids on the trains going out on the county lines jobs, and then tracking it right back to you know the 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 the, the, the main crime gangs in their own host countries. So presumably. Presumably, would be fair to say that most cocaine is still coming from originally South America, probably Mexico, originally. Um, th- the three main producing countries are um, Colombia, Bolivia, and Peru. Colombia is is, is is the largest producer. So within those three countries, there there are small productions outside, a little right. some small production in Mexico, small production in Ecuador, for example. But the main three countries are those. Right. Okay. So those so those are your that's your producers. Who will obviously end up getting, uh, I suppose, the lion's share of the money. But then you've got the sort of middle tier. These are the, the the crime gangs. Let's talk about Europe then. Crime gangs who are actually then uh, receiving it from the producer, and then they've got their own distribution networks, probably all around Europe. Where where would you say? those who who are the big hitters in terms of the european crime gangs and so it's your, it's your albanians um and it would be your italian mafias as well the end and getter um, right. control some some people estimate it as much as 80 percent of the cocaine that comes into europe but a lot of that is working with other crime groups such as um those from albania right and, and they've made the links they've made the links direct into south america so they've gone over there. They've looked at their business models. They've 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 sought to make it more efficient. So they've gone straight to the producers, straight to the growers, and the, the cartel that grow those um, control those growers and producers. And they've they've managed to take the transportation of the drugs from South America to Europe. So they've taken a whole leg of the supply line away and right. reduced their costs considerably. And that's why we see, you know, the price of cocaine and heroin as well. At the moment, wholesale prices are as low as they've ever been, and that can only, and that's despite the lockdowns that we've had. That's despite the successes of Operation Venetic. So that can only tell you they're getting more and more successful. They're actively targeting targeting Europe now, rather than North America. You know, North America was always the number one market. In my opinion, that's now switched to Europe because mm. you know they can sell their cocaine for more money in Europe. The users in and uh, the numbers of users in Europe is growing. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the West is saturated with users. You know, it, we've got an insatiable appetite in Western Europe for cocaine, especially in the UK. But that um, appetite now is growing and it's, it's spreading east along, along Europe. So they're actively targeting us. Higher prices. Um, if they do get caught, less punishment compared to North America. Extradition is difficult for Europe. It's not for North America, you know. Wow. So, so we, think about we, that. We, we've got an oversupply, and that that's the only reason for our wholesale prices being as low as they are at the moment. So you you can get cocaine now for twenty thousand pounds a kilo, not a problem in the UK, you know. If you wind the clock back fifteen years, 
it was approaching £50,000 a kilo. Wow. So a massive drop in that wholesale price, which tells us that there's there's no shortage of it coming in. We've got an oversupply, if anything. And the street, if you look at what happens at the street, the purities have never been higher. So there's there's very little bulking or adulteration of the cocaine hydrochloride that we find in the in the possession of the end user. So it's not been touched. It's it's pure cocaine. When I say pure, it's typically above 80%. And, and, just, on, and just on that one, in terms of the purity, given that you're an expert witness in drugs, um, presumably you're you're not involved in that side of things. Presumably the the expert um, sort of evidence in terms of purity levels, that's presumably a forensic scientist or who, who does that? Yeah, the forensic science um, service providers um, provide the purity data. But obviously I get the insights because I'm reading the reports regularly when I get to comment on cases. Right. So the purity at the end user is, is as high as it's ever been. The price is, is is stable at the end user level, but the wholesale price has come right down. God. So um, so if we go back to that sort of business model, so if you imagine in my head, I'm, I'm thinking of, I've got sort of an inverted pyramid. So at the bottom of the pointy bit, you've got the suppliers originally in their host countries who pass it on to the crime gangs, the Italian mafia, the Albanian mafia, are kind of in that middle bit. And then as you get up to the larger bit at the top, then that's all your that's all your crime, your OCGs, I suppose, isn't it? Yeah. Your, your OCGs and your, your urban street gangs. Well, I suppose the OCGs are then feeding the urban street gangs Spot on. To, then, to then go out and actually flog it to punters on the street or at private addresses, or is that by right? Yeah, your urban street gangs, um, they'll have their local supply and, and most of them will have a county line. So 60% of county lines that come from London, and London is the main exporter of county lines, 60% of those lines can be tracked directly back to urban street gangs. Urban street gangs work with organised crime. You know, the urban street gangs get the wholesale supplies of drugs from the organised crime groups, and it also gives them access to weapons as well. Mm. And the and the urban street gangs can also offer the organised crime um, groups their services, and their services are usually violence. You know, what if you're an organised crime group and you've got a potential court case coming up and you've got some witnesses that need intimidating why do it yourself when you can get an urban street gang to do it because one of the main you know one of the main products if you like is violence serious violence so they've got a, they've got a, a close relationship organized crime groups and urban street gangs and then your urban street gangs get the wholesale supply of drugs and then it's either into the local supply markets and then if you've got any excess why not the county line yeah. the county line is just the franchise it's just like you've got your Tesco and your Tesco Express. Yeah, yeah. They've got their home markets, which is their Tesco supermarket. Yeah, yeah. When they've got when that market is, you know, it's saturated, they cannot possibly get any more customers. Yeah, yeah. The county line. So for me, a county line is a luxury, if you like. The urban street gangs turn to when the home market is stable and performing well. Right. They cannot grow anymore. And it's uh, and as we all know, then the violence that spills out um, between those urban street gangs and all of the aggressive posturing on sort of uh, gr you know um, God, what do you call it? Grime? Is it grime music? I'm rubbish with all this stuff. Grime, drill, drill, drill music, and all of this kind of stuff. All this. Yeah. Stuff. So when when I was in the West Midlands, we would be having to monitor certain YouTube channels. <laughs> where a lot of this drill music where they were basically um goading one another 
yeah uh, and yeah. giving it the big one i mean it's it's um it's quite anybody who's listened to this who 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 hasn't it doesn't understand this stuff it's uh, i mean i have no idea i've no idea what they're saying on these videos no idea and we used to have to get people in uh who were they were kind of um uh working as kind of mentors and things were who were maybe people who who had maybe turned their lives around a little bit you know had come out of prison and sorted yeah. themselves out we'd have to get them to try and interpret what was being said in these videos because i had but there's always there was always this, the standard thing was large group of young men all balaclavered up with hoodies on um flash cars lamborghinis loads of cash yeah uh, lots of simulated handguns being pointed and all of this nonsense you know what i mean but yeah it i find it i find it so depressing that the asp the life aspirations of these young men are so low aren't they um and then that there is this glamour isn't there associated with cash easy cash fancy cars yeah scantily clad women that's kind of it isn't it yeah, absolutely. It's um, it is bizarre. Um, it's it's a, it's a tricky one, drill music, because I mean, what you're referring to is is as um, would be labelled as a diss track, where they're disrespecting each other, and it's those kind of tracks that do you know up the ante, and whoever's disrespected in that track, you know, they need to retaliate. And that's we would what... have we would have shootings within we would have shootings within twenty four hours of a new video coming up. Yeah, so that's why they've got trusted flaggers in the Met and they monitor social media platforms for those in London. I don't know if Westmeds have got a similar unit. And if it is a, if it is considered a risk of serious violence um, coming from those tracks, they'll remove it. They'll contact Facebook, YouTube, whoever, and they'll get that removed, that content. But there's no doubt whatsoever that it can um, induce serious violence. But you've got to be, you know, it's a political hot potato again, Ian. You've got to be really careful because... This kind of music, whilst it might not be to our taste, although mm. some tracks I find, you know, quite addictive to listen to, you know, it, it is considered as, a, as an art form and it is considered and it is a legitimate way out of crime for some of these people. But it's it's a tricky one because the subjects they talk about, in my, in my very humble opinion, I've got not, you know, I see no problem whatsoever with the music itself. It's just mm. when it's weaponized and used to create this, you know, this this violence that happens. Oh, and yeah. I have got a problem also with it being, you know, free for anybody to listen to, in, including young children. Mm. But when they're talking about weapons, serious violence, drug use, drug drug supply, the misogyny within this music is is unreal. Yeah. Why we allow, you know, Tion Wayne's track. Um, body, which is high in misogyny, and all those other things I've just mentioned. That was the number one track used in TikTok in 2021. Oh, God. You've got, you know, you've got young girls dancing around in their tutus in the kitchen with this track in the background, and they're talking about some horrible things, and oh, no. parents haven't got a clue what words are being used. And the children might not, but the children very soon will get to yeah. know what these. Just on that one, who who do you who do you get um, to interpret? And do you do you have people who you can go to to actually interpret these videos and actually sort of transcribe what's being said and what it actually means? Yeah, so I I can I can do some of them. 
I'll look at the individual job and I've got a number of people around the UK that I can send that to, mm. to, to provide an expert witness statement on. You've got to be really careful when it comes to gang statements. Um, and it's something that I sought to change in the Met. So what they used to do in the Met is they used to have a gang statement, which was all the evidence relating to the, you know, the history of the gang, who knows who, what beef has been had with, you know, from one gang to another between mm. individuals. And then they'd also comment upon the musical lyrics within the track and give the interpretation of what was being said. Mm. So I said, you can't do that, you know, because you've, you're supposed to be impartial. How can you be impartial if you've got personal knowledge of all the history of the gang and all the different beefs that have taken place? So yeah. you've just got to separate the two. Yeah. So you'll get a gang statement, which will deal with the history about how people know each other and what incidents have gone on in the past, and then just separate out the lyrics for the song and then just get one expert to interpret the lyrics that have been said. And then you can work out, you know, leave it to the jury to work out when they say, you know... We were ten toes with a skeng on wherever, so we, I, we were on foot with the knife. Um, yeah, and that's very strange. I don't. I mean, you know, I'm a I'm a 57 year old white bloke. I just I I don't get it. And but then I, I'm not meant to get it, am I? You know, it's not. No. This music is not is not meant for me. You know, but I think I suppose the thing I just find quite sad is that. Um, life is seen as being so cheap, doesn't it? Yeah. You know, and the the attraction of easy cash and all of that um, so-called, in inverted commas, glamorous lifestyle. But I don't find it glamorous at all, but they clearly do. Yeah. Um, but anyway, but listen, um, I'm conscious of time. We've been on nearly an hour and a half, um, and I'll, I'll get I'll be getting angry messages from people to say just before we before we kind of wrap up, I'd just be curious. Given that, so, you've already described how you were involved in sort of the anti-corruption side of things. Um, what the fuck is going on in the Met at the moment? I nearly spit my tea out here. <laughs> I mean, I shouldn't laugh. It's not. That was absolutely. I'm laughing at you nearly spitting your tea out. But David Carrick, oh Uh, my God, what the fuck has gone on? Just throw the key away. Throw the key away. How how has that not been spotted by colleagues, though? I mean, I I was so disappointed yesterday, you know. Oh, I know. I think we all all were. We all were. Because you retire, but you never really leave ever, do you? You're always. You're always going to be there and you always want the best and you always want to support people. And, you know, you'll always stick up if you hear arguments going on, if if if, if you've got any grounds to stick up. But that sort of stuff there just really, you know, it's like a punch to the stomach. Yeah, it's it is. It really awful. is. And, and I think the unforgivable thing is that there were clearly so many red flags. Weren't there? That's the thing. So many. Me. They cannot ever turn around and say that we didn't. We didn't know that this person was a wrong and i mean so many opportunities it would seem that's the thing for me and when you see things in the place that you think that's you know that's probably where we're not why we're not succeeding it's because sometimes people put the reputation of the organization you know and protecting that you know above you know just hands up we've done something wrong mm. this isn't this hasn't turned out how, we, how it was meant to be. You know, that hands-up apology, people understand a lot more than rather than fighting and saying, yeah, let's... I'm not making myself clear there, am I? Yeah. I, wish there was, I wish there was more honesty and 
you know, they would admit when things go wrong sooner rather than trying to protect the reputation. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's, that's on an and individual. The thing that I, the thing I find the thing I find weird is the fact that there seem to be this whole system just seems to be so um, fickle, and um, there seems to be no consistency in terms of the way that people are dealt with by the organisation. A lot of people get disciplined or sacked for really quite trivial things. Yeah. And yet, at the same time, you have people like him and Wayne Cousins, and I'll come on, there's another interesting interesting common denominator between these two idiots that I'll, I think will be interested to see what you think. Um, at the same time, you've got people like that who are clearly wrong and there is abundant... There have been abundant opportunities to identify that, which have been either ignored uh, or maybe just it just could be incompetence. I don't know what, but it just doesn't seem to be any kind of consistent approach to discipline and bad behavior. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, absolutely. You see it all the time. Um, I suppose it's you have to treat every case on its individual merits don't you but i definitely agree with you you know especially when you see oh, i don't want to get too politically here mm. it, yeah I <laughs> well no i'm trying I, I, I I'm, trying think, to... um, I'm 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 conscious of the fact that as an expert witness you've got a professional need to yeah. maintain your your independence so i i respect that absolutely um, um, so, but yeah, it's a complete cluster, isn't it? And um, and I do feel for Mark Riley. I think, oh my God, what you must you must just. I mean, I dare say there must there will be other things clearly, and I think he's already hinted at that in yeah. uh, in interviews that he's already given that there's clearly going to be um, other things coming out either by him or by others in due course and it's yeah the thing i feel really sad about is the fact that as you know the vast majority of police officers in england and wales are good people but this stuff has a terrible impact on them doesn't it yeah. in terms of their you know there was a time when i was really proud to say i was a police officer um and i would drop it into conversations because i was something i was really proud of now i, I think i would probably keep it to myself I, I must yeah. admit, and I've I've always kept it to myself. Have you? you know, just because I, you know, if if it's if I went to a party and I didn't know people, I try not to mention it, mm. just because you never you can never judge people's reactions. But yeah, yeah. Matt Rowley, he's got a heck of a job on his on his hands, and I wish him every success. But yeah, I think all do. I think all do. I mean, it's a real uphill struggle now, isn't it? It's gone. Some some things have gone so far. Yeah. It's yeah. how do you pull it back? Yeah, I don't know, mate. But um, anyway, listen. Uh, we're not going to solve that one, are we? But um, listen, th no. that was really, really fascinating, and um, I learned I learned a lot there. That was great. I love it, and I love I love uh, you know speaking to people like you on this podcast. It's brilliant. It's just such a such an eye opener to see into someone else's world and um, to learn about what they do. So, so thanks thanks a million, Ian. I really really enjoyed that. It was great. Thanks for having me on, Ian. When I saw some of your guests that you've had previously, I was a little bit wide. Does he want to talk to me? <laughs> so I've, I've really enjoyed it. No, and I enjoy all of them. I think they're great. great. Don't forget when you see Folksy, please give him a, a shout out. <laughs> I will. Yeah. He hasn't got he hasn't got as much hair as he had when you probably hey. worked with him. <laughs>
We're all living that dream, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> Listen, Ian, thanks a million. I really appreciate it. And uh, I wish you the very best of luck. And just a pl- final plug for your business again. It's um, Expert, Expert. Wit- Yeah, Expert Witness Services. That's got a website, is it? So yeah. Expert Witness is all one word, .co.uk. Expert Witness Services. Well, yeah. judging from the stuff that you've been putting out on LinkedIn, I don't think it needs any plugging. You're obviously doing really, really well. And I wish you the very best for the future. Thanks, Ian. You too. You take care, my friend. Good luck now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Once we had a policeman, he was often in our street. We used to smile and wave at him while walking on his feet. But now we never see him, it really makes us frown. No longer do we feel that we're the safest street in town.